you, uh, if you have any friends who uh, are doubters, um, believe that the Bible is full of contradiction. Maybe hear from them from time to time. If you have any friends who are doubters, believe the Bible is full of contradictions. Uh, be sure to strengthen their case by taking them to the passage of Scripture we're going to look at together this morning. Wow. Holy smokes. Okay? Um, in just a few verses, um, in the end of Matthew chapter 11, uh, Jesus seems to contradict himself at least three times. And as we're reading it through, we say, what did you just say, Jesus? So, so um, in just a few verses, he, he takes what has been kind of this historic, strained discussion among, us, among Christians... Um, and puts Calvinism and Arminianism head on against one another. Okay, this, this strange discussion has taken place over the last few centuries uh, concerning how we're to understand God's sovereignty and, and in contrast to human will and the freedom to choose. How do we, how do we in one, put, Jesus puts it head on. Uh, here's the second thing. Jesus is talking to God, so in some way, shape, or form, we've got God talking to God in some kind of divine schizophrenia. Like, how are we supposed to understand this? Okay? And then, and then there's a third thing that happens here. Jesus offers comfort and rest through an instrument of labor. So we kind of look at these things and we say, Jesus, are these contradictory concepts? Are these ideas that don't belong together? And yet we hear them on the lips of our Savior. And we say, well, how then are we supposed to approach this? Are, are they contradictions? Are they seeming contradictions? What do we do with this? And, and so, so this morning let me suggest that if, if your imaginings of God, like the way you think about God, the way you sort of conceive Him... If, if your imaginings of God are able to make complete sense of this, your God is too small. Almost certainly, your God is too small. Is your God, is your God big enough to contain mystery? Like, as you think about the one you worship, like, not just contain mystery, but is it possible for him to be mystery Revealed, at least revealed to the extent that in our human limitations we can comprehend him. But this morning I want to invite you to invite Jesus just to expand, maybe it's only a little bit for you, but expand your appreciation for who God is. Deepen your understanding, even just a little bit, of, of the magnitude of the one we worship when we come together every Sunday, the one we live our worship out day in and day out, hour after hour, through the course of our week, this one whom we are called to worship. So Lord Jesus, we ask that you show yourself to us a little bit more. Lord Jesus, this morning as we gather, would you increase our appreciation for, our understanding of, and our experience of you? Well, Holy Spirit, would you come and teach us in order that we might see Jesus more clearly? And thank you, Father, for, for the Holy Scriptures which you've given to us, your word to us, 
May we increase in our ability to live under the guidance of your word. We ask all of this in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everybody said, Amen. So follow along this morning. We're going to jump into Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 20. It will be on the screen. If you're following along in a digital version of the Bible, I'm in the New International Version. Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 20, and I'm going to go down to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. We, we talked about this last week. I won't go over it too much. But Tyre and Sidon, port cities, typical port cities up in the Mediterranean, just on the north side of Israel, typical port cities, godless, pagan, um, denounced throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus says, if the miracles that were performed in you, Chorazin, Beth, uh, Bethsaida, Bethsaida, some of the disciples are from Bethsaida, um, if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, so the town that Jesus kind of made his home base of operations in the Galilee region on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. You, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, um, it, would have been it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For I said, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. May he help us understand it, and, 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 or even just a little bit more, right? And then live out of it as we continue on. I mean, so, so this kind of first dilemma, or even contradiction that we encounter, is this, is this piece which has been a historic struggle for, for Christians in Christendom to understand um, how does God's sovereign, sure control and management of, of all things, how does this intersect with human responsibility to, to, to respond to God, to choose God? John Calvin, 1509 to 1664. Um, he lived in France. Um, he was interacting with like, so, so John Calvin, not to be mistaken for Calvinist Klein. Okay? So just didn't, didn't want any, any kind of confusion there for you. John Calvin, John Calvin, he interacted with 
Yeah, we better go back. Yeah, sorry, that's just going to be too distracting. <laughs> John Calvin interacted with um, with ideas that were brought forward initially by Aurelius Augustinus, um, Augustine of Hippo, back in like 354 A.D. So these are old ideas, early Christians trying to wrestle with some of these ideas, and in particular, Calvin building on Augustine that they emphasize this this biblical reality. Uh, that the God is at work in our world, managing all things. And, and, and anyone who's going to respond to him is going to do so because he has enabled them to, to respond <laughs> by faith to him. Well, not long after John Calvin, uh, Yaakov Arminius, Netherlands, 1560 to 1609, there's, there's uh, Arminius. He was interacting with these ideas, and he said, well, hang on a minute here. I think there's too much emphasis on that. And he emphasized, he emphasized another biblical reality. The human beings are responsible for, to choose. That we must, we must inter interact with God, and the responsibility falls on our shoulders to choose God. And so he sort of argued that, well, God's choice must have been built on his foreknowledge of your choice. And that's how we kind of reconcile these irreconcilable scriptures. Now, we're not going to solve this together this morning, okay? This is this has befuddled Christians for centuries. But, 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 but in, these ideas come together in the words of Jesus back to back here in this passage, these seeming contradictions. Jesus has condemned these towns, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum, for not responding. Jesus himself was in their midst. I mean, does anybody do Jesus better than Jesus? Right? Does anybody teach better than Jesus? Does anyone do more miracles, more healings, more divine deliverance than, than Jesus? No. Good grief. And he was in their very presence. And, and, and the, the, the majority of the population did not recognize him. They made a cane, soft spectacle, uh, walked away. Some responded. Uh, but, but, but they remained unchanged. And because of that, Jesus spoke his judgment over these, over these towns. He warned them the judgment was coming. They needed to be responding. He was sending his team back. They were going back, right? He's not giving up on them. But, they, but he's warning them judgment is coming. But then Jesus turns around in the passage that we just read. And he says this. He says in verse 11, verse 20, chapter 11, verse 25, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. He said, well, how, how can this exist? He revealed them to little children. He's talking about his disciples, those who have been responding to the message, the very same message that's been going out in Chorazin, Bethsaida. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. In other words, it was his right and responsibility as God, title of God. Anyone, nobody wants the title of God, okay? You're not big enough, you're not smart enough. I'm not, certainly not. I, I know many of you. I know many of you are super smart, wonderful people. But, but none of us, none of us want that, that responsibility. He says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so Jesus is speaking judgment, and at the same time acknowledging that, that no one is going to respond unless he's enabled them to respond. And so we kind of run head on into this first seeming contradiction as we're reading our way through this. And we've got to recognize that, that God is in control of perfect freedom. And you say, what? Like, that's, that's impossible. How? Is your God big enough? 
your God big enough to contain this tree? And uh, more than just containing mystery, is God big enough to be mystery revealed to the extent that we can possibly, possibly figure it out? I mean, everyone worships something, and I don't know where you're coming from this morning as you've, as you've come in here. Everyone worships someone or something. That, that thing which is, that one that is first in my life. That, 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 that everything else revolves around. Uh, I, I do for it. I respond from it. Everyone worships someone or something. And, and understandably, we as human beings, we're inclined to imagine God to be like us. Maybe, maybe a little bigger, a little, maybe a little better, but we imagine Him to be like us. He's someone that we can interact with, someone that we would choose, someone that we would obey, much like a child would obey a, a, a parent. Um, and, and someone who would reward us for our fidelity to him. And, and all of those things are true. That, 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 that we have been made in, Here's the problem with the way I articulated that. It's anthropocentric. It's, it's anthro, anthros, man. It's, it's human-centered. And, and yet the scriptures tell us that we are to be God-centered. That everything is to revolve around him. He is to be the center. And then to make the mystery just a little bit deeper, he places us at the center of his concern. We see, my mind is about to explode as I try to understand the complexities of these things. Could these truths, articulated by Jesus, impossible in our finite way of thinking, be completely possible and utterly logical in his expanse, the expanse of who he is? I was reading Wired magazine this past week. Um, there's, a, there's a new sort of thing in computer technology that's coming. So this is a little dangerous, Pastor Terry dipping into the realm of science, right? I know. But I'll, I'll risk it. I'll risk it because I think the point is worth it. So, so compute, computation, the way computers work up until now, uh, is in a linear fashion. Um, a computer has to make a choice. It's a, a, a yes or a no. It's a zero or a one, a binary sort of thing. And, and so everything has to follow in a linear sequence in order for a computer to work. And they keep pumping up the power and the speed and all. But scientists believe that they're going to hit a wall, that, that the time is coming, and we're fairly close to it, when they can't actually do it any faster because of the physics involved. And, and so the guys that are working with the Hadron Collider and, and things like this, high science, trying to gather masses of data, they said there's got to be another way of doing it. They turned to quantum physics and quantum mechanics in order to try to resolve this. And so there's something called quantum computing that's sort of thought to be the thing of the future, where multiple things can happen simultaneously in, in the same instant. And it, it, it exponentially increases the power and the speed of the computer. Now that's everything I know about that subject. The point is this. The, the point is this. That, that, that there is something that exists now that a decade ago we would have thought utterly impossible. Like, never would have imagined such a thing could be. We, we continue to grow in our, our wisdom, our understanding, our knowledge of the universe, and we continue to be marveled. We continue to marvel in awe at, at these things that we encounter. And we come back and say, well, 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 could it not then be that these truths that are articulated by Jesus, or on the lips of Jesus, that in our finite way of thinking, that which we've been able to manage thus far is impossible, and yet with him, nothing is impossible. In him, it's a, com a completely logical, reasonable thing in the greatness that is our God. 
some have suggested that it's a little bit like three blind people um, holding on to different parts of the elephant. Um, one holding on to the tail, another hanging on to the leg, someone else hanging on to the trunk. And, and they get, come up with a completely different explanation for what this creature looks like. And yet if we were to follow the words of Jesus as we, as, as we have been working our way through Matthew, He's been intent, he's been persistent, he's been consistent in, in describing Jesus as, as the one who's been divinely brought, the, the one who has powerfully taught, and he invites us to be caught up in the greatness of what Jesus is, of who Jesus is, of the words that are Jesus. And, and so we're just confronted and we're saying, well, maybe, maybe God is bigger than I can imagine. And the human experience falls short of being able to embrace the magnanimity that is his, the, the, the enormity that is his, adequately, completely. And so when Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin of Bethsaida, Jesus was with you and you didn't respond. And, and then Jesus says these things, referring to his teaching, referring to his miracles, all that have taken place, are hidden from the wise and revealed to little children. These concepts... They seem to compete against one another. They seem to stand in opposition to one another. And yet, they rest comfortably on the lips of Jesus. Dr. Grant Osborne, scholar, commentary writer, he writes the following. He says, theological systems have debated this for centuries, and each side believes they alone are right. What is interesting is the total absence of debate in the early church on this issue. They simply allowed the tension to stand. And Jesus refused to overemphasize either side. We should definitely follow his example and refuse to allow ourselves to be divided on this issue. There is mystery in the kingdom. And God has not yet given us all the truth there is. We need humility and less arrogance to be more the receptive children and less the proud and learned. Now, or maybe I should say, but, have you ever stood, like Jesus, gazing at the brokenness and the confusion of our fallen world, and thought, I don't forget it. Like, could you, could you please just see Jesus? And see the hope that he's brought, the healing that he's brought, the restoration that he's brought, the being reconciled to the Father through the work of the Son. It is the first step then to being reconciled to one another as his children. And, and if the world's resistance to God frustrates us, I mean, should that also frustrate, frustrate Jesus? Woe to you, Cory. Woe to you, Calgary. Woe to you, Toronto. Woe to you, Okotoks. I have been present among you in my people, and yet you don't respond. Commentator. Dr. Frederick Bruner in his book, The Christ Book. He writes the following. Somehow and somewhere, behind and above a discouraged world, sorry, that was behind and above a discouraging world, stands a poised father, completely in control and utterly unfrustrated. To believe that human beings are the final arbiters of history is inevitably to become the whiner rather than the thanker. If we think it's all up to us, 
If we think we are the final arbiters of history, we think that it's all up to us, we become whiners rather than thankers because human irresponsibility embitters. The church needs her master's acquiescence in the sovereignty of God. The church needs her master's submission to the sovereignty of God. The church needs her master's her master's acceptance of the sovereignty of God if she is to have Jesus' poise in ministry. Excessive attention to an unresponsive world and insufficient appreciation of the relaxing reality of God's sovereignty. You drive Christians into the, the slough of the spawn. You follow that? But don't, 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 get, don't get fixated on the brokenness of the world. It's going to lead chaos. It's going to lead to misery. Don't, don't, don't get fixated on, on its unresponsiveness. Don't allow your discouragement to come. Look to the postulates of others. The, the one who continues to be at work in the, the nuances, in the intricacies, in the, in the seeming uh, desperations of the world that he has created and continues to be active in Anyway, that's an attempt to get at this kind of first seeming contradiction. God, is God big enough to exist in, in, in this mystery? But, but in the same passage, Jesus is presented as speaking to the Father. And not only is, is God talking to God here, uh, but, but Jesus is using language here that only God himself can use. And this becomes part of Matthew's point for us. Matthew's confronting us with this notion. He's been doing so all along. This, this idea that Jesus, uh, divinely brought and powerfully taught, invites us to be caught up in him. Matthew's confronting us with this idea that, that Jesus, while fully human, is truly God himself walking among us. He's God himself walking among us. Jesus says things that only God can say. Verse 27, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In our version devotional, those of us who have been kind of following the Lent series, uh, uh, we've been listening to the, the writings of Dr. Uh, N.T. Wright. And on, I think it was on Wednesday, uh, he was reflecting on Matthew chapter 8. That's the passage where uh, Jesus calms the, the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He's reflecting on the disciples' orientation. They begin by, who does he think he is? Like, like who does he think he is? To be asleep in the boat, and then to stand up and begin to, to speak against the, the storm. But their posture quickly turns to, who is this man? Like, who does these things? Who says these things? And we hear these words that Jesus has spoken here. And we and, who does these things? Who says these things? This is so utterly Jesus-centered. It's either egotism beyond the, beyond the pale, or, or this is Matthew demonstrating again that this, this one who's walked among you, who's flesh and blood, is so much more than only human being. Frederick Bruner writes, he says, the classic Christian conviction is this. There is no knowledge anywhere of God the Father that is not mediated through God the Son. And that is not brought into the individual heart through God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus here is presenting himself as being in what we come to call the Godhead. 
He's, he's in this, this concept of, again, for centuries, we've tried to wrap our minds around it, that there is one God who exists in three persons. They are distinct, and yet there is only one. And Jesus is placing himself at, at the center of your and my access to God. He's equating himself with God. The Apostle Paul, he was writing to Timothy, who was his mentor, his, his, his protege, his mentor, First Timothy chapter 2, he says, There is only one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And these shocking statements kind of, they, they continue. Uh, verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now that, this is a shocking statement because no Jewish teacher ever, ever said anything like this. So, so the Jewish teachers, they would say things like, take the yoke of the law upon you. Listen to the law. Observe the law. Require, but they would never say, take my yoke upon you. See, Jesus is placing himself here as the, the, the final and the most the authoritative interpreter of the law. And he's saying, my yoke that I give you is what I'm inviting you to take upon yourself in order that you would live successfully. In order that you would live well. Learn to carry the burdens of life by, by, by taking my instruction upon you, by learning from my, the miracles that we're performing, the ten miracles that he performed, Matthew's recorded for us already. Take these upon you, learn from these. This kind of introduces us to the third sort of seeming contradiction. Jesus is inviting me, you, to experience rest, but he does so through an instrument of labor. How does that work? How, do, how is that even possible? A yoke was an instrument that someone would throw across their shoulders in order to carry a greater load, spread the load out so that it could be burdened, it could be managed. A yoke was an instrument that would tie together two oxen as they would pull in order that they could pull, in order that they could carry more. And Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy, in other words, it fits well, and my burden is light. These two statements are complementary. They're intended to my, take my yoke, my teaching, my instruction, my example upon you, learn from me, these amplify one another. I mean, this is very personal, very personal. Learn from me, be yoked to me, carry the burden of life with me, with my instruction, with my example with my partnership walking with you. I myself will teach you. I myself, through the Sermon on the Mount, through the Ten, through, through the ten Miracles. And, and notice that, that the yoke is not a sitting instrument. He didn't say, take my chair upon you and learn from me. He said, take my, this is an instrument where we walk with him, and in the walking, we begin learning. In the journey, we begin to experience him. Are your imaginings just growing even a little bit this morning? Is it possible that we, we've maybe made him too small in our eyes? Well, we've brought him down to kind of man size? <coughs> Is it possible that you've, you've maybe been thinking about him as, as kind of like 
you, kind of like me, only bigger. Like, you know, bigger, you know, better, stronger. When in fact he is sovereign, he is all-knowing. He is everywhere at the same time. And Jesus here says all things have been given to him. All things are under Jesus' command, including the access to the Father. And the Father has been pleased to reveal himself to us via the Son, through Christ. And now he takes up residence in the life of any who would turn to him and be saved. In the very person of the Holy Spirit, and God himself among us, we say, wow, I, don't, I can't think about this. It hurts my brain to think about this. And he would say to you, he would say to me, you, you've only just begun. Like, you've only just begun. What you see and what you know can only possibly exist in, in, in the greatness of a God who's so much greater than we can imagine, so much more brilliant, so much more powerful, so much more passionate. And this must lead us then to a place of worship. Like, why do we gather on a Sunday? Why do we sing songs, lay down your burdens? Why do we sing these? Because he's worthy to receive the worship that we bring. How great is our God, sing with me. But if we sing about his greatness, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. And sometimes these words simply become words to us. May it never be so. May it never be so. May we become just consciously intentional that we would own the words and invite ourselves to enter into the mystery of that which is so much greater than we could ever possibly compute. So much greater than we can ever possibly grasp. So much greater than we can ever possibly experience. Frederick Bruner, he notes the following. He says, the simple secret of the church is the risen Lord Jesus Christ, whose companionship we experience in his spirit, in his word, in the sacraments, and in his people. Consider what God has said through the pages of the Hebrew scriptures about himself. So, to Moses, here's what God said. Exodus 33. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. King David, he observed, Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the waters of rest. He restores my soul. Jeremiah, the, the weeping prophet, God promised. He said, I will satisfy the weary... And all who are faint, I will replenish. The prophet Ezekiel, God promised, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And it's against this backdrop, then, that Jesus speaks the unthinkable. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let me invite you to stand with me, if you would, please.
as the disciples were encountering the breadth and scope, the greatness and depth, and the wonder, the mystery of Jesus as they walked, sometimes in confusion and misunderstanding, Jesus said, listen, when you pray, pray like this. Let's us pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let's just pause there. Hallowed be thy name. Kept holy, acknowledged as, as, as great, as magnificent. Let's pray on. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever.